Today, joining the podcast is Vincent Goloso, an assistant professor of economics at George Mason University, whose research centers on the historical measurement of living standards and inequality, public economics, population economics, and political economy. So all topics that should be of great interest to those of you who follow this podcast. Uh, he identifies as a cornucopian economist, a statistics freak, his word, and is a quantitative historian. He is an extremely prolific scholar with more than 60 peer-reviewed articles in respected academic journals. And he's here today to discuss one of his latest papers that he has co-authored in the European Journal of Law and Economics titled Pandemics, Economic Freedom, and Institutional Trade-Offs. And he's been doing a lot of work on this topic recently, and it's obviously very relevant today. So this is going to be a really interesting conversation. Uh, Vincent, how are you? It's a pleasure. Thank you very much for inviting me, and thanks for the uh, the introduction. I, it makes me seem like a very amazing person, a bit more amazing than I think of myself as. So thank you very much. It's, uh, it's flattering as an introduction. Thank you for joining me. Um, so what is the paper about and what prompted you and your co-authors to write it? So it started as, uh, as kind of an accident uh, a few years back, actually, uh, because of an economic historian named Werner Troskin. And Werner Troskin was uh, an incredibly brilliant scholar and his insight was that what institutions are able to do come with trade-offs. So imagine today, and this is probably like a way to abstract this to make it like so, so readers can imagine. If the state can do good things and you give it the power to do good things, it can also do the bad things. So when you're deciding to give a certain set of powers to the state, you're giving it the benefits of doing the good thing, but also the bad thing, which any libertarian would kind of appreciate as, as an argument. But Troskin went a bit further and applied it to topics of public health. And his trade-off was that when the state had great ability to combat certain types of diseases, it generally came with the ability of restricting property rights, of infringing upon property rights. And the result of that was that, yes, certain diseases could be combated, uh, but diseases that stemmed from poverty could not, and that was because property rights allow for faster economic growth, and faster economic growth reduces problems related to malnutrition, to uh, maternal mortality, to uh, other form of, uh, of causes of death that are basically the result of people being poor. So the trade-off is you either get a state that's able to combat certain types of particularly bad diseases that are generally like infectious diseases. So you can quarantine people forcibly, you can force them to have certain behavior, but that means that the state has the ability and the capacity to infringe on property rights. And the result from that is the trade-off is you get slower economic growth in the future, you will have more deaths from other diseases. That's like a general argument. Right, and you, you argue in the paper that institutions are bundles or package deals. Could you explain what you mean by that and how should we think about the trade-offs embedded in the provision of public health measures? So in the example from, from Troskin, and then we can move on to pandemics because I think it's easier to start with his stuff. Mm -hmm. He takes the example of smallpox. 
and in smallpox in the late 19th century America. America was weird because it's always been weird. It's exceptional in so many ways, especially in the way it is, it is contradictory, at least first glance, but when you understand institution, it's actually very consistent. So the United States was the richest country in the late 19th century in the world. Uh, living standards were exceptionally high, but weirdly enough, the United States had one of the highest rates of smallpox death. And so some people were saying, you know, it's maybe it's like there's something weird about the U.S. on this. The, the, bund the, the bundle here appears clearly for an economist was that the measures back then that could have reduced smallpox, which is a highly infectious disease, require very strong government intervention, especially given the technological constraint of the time. That meant very strong states. That meant that they would be able to uh, force people to do certain things, to prohibit certain business activities uh, during outbreaks, or just like mandate certain, uh, like for example, uh, mandate vaccinations back then. Uh, so vaccine mandates were a topic a long time ago. Uh, but if the state's able to do this, it will be able to disregard property rights. And so they will have lower economic growth. So what Truscan points out is, look, that really explains it well. The United States has such a strong protection of property rights compared with everybody else in the world. That's what makes it rich. But at the same time, it comes with like a downside, which is government entities can't combat infectious diseases as well as uh, other countries that have that have institutions that are more powerful, but because of these more powerful institutions, government-wise, they can't fight. Uh, they they can fight these infectious diseases, but not generate economic growth. So that's the first, like a first level of trade-off. But the second layer of trade-off is that the United States was so rich, and the property rights were so uh, uh, were so well protected that it actually generated enough economic growth that it incentivized or permitted investment in other form of activities that reduced mortality from other diseases, such as in back then would have been typhoid fever. So typhoid fever is a really good example here because it requires water treatment facilities. These are super capital intensive. This is not something poor societies can do very easily. It's also investments that are generally long lasting because you need to make super big upfront costs. So as a result, you would need very strong property rights for because these capitals, the capital goods would be fixed. The, the king or the prime minister or the president could just seize them. If they're not well protected, people would just not make these investments. In the United States, the protection of property rights meant that not only was the United States rich, but it also incentivized investments in water treatment facilities. So that the US, unlike many other countries, had much lower case rates and faster falling rates of typhoid fever, which was eight times as deadly in terms of how many people were killed on a, on a yearly basis. I was killing eight times more people than, uh, than smallpox. So in a way, the United States was not only, yes, it was doing a shit job, sorry for for cussing a bit, is doing a horrible job with regards to, to smallpox, but it was doing an amazing job with regard to typhoid fever, which was a more burdensome disease. So that's the trade-off that Troskin points out, is you either get institutions that are going to make you protected from certain infectious diseases, but are going to make you poor, and in the long run, make you sicker. Or you get institutions that in the short run expose you and make you more vulnerable to certain types of diseases, but that these institutions will make you richer and less vulnerable to other types of diseases. All right, and as we're recording this, obviously much of the world 
is enacting or considering enacting new restrictions related to the Omicron surge of the current pandemic. So this debate is extremely relevant considering these trade-offs. So let's uh, zoom out a bit. The paper deals with the relationship between health and wealth and economic freedom. Yep. What is the nature of those relationships? So what we did in the paper, we extended the logic Troskin did of the trade-offs. And what we said is, listen, there should be a very simple pred prediction from what Troskin mentions, and we could apply it to pandemics uh, or to any form of, of other trade-off in terms of diseases is economic freedom should reduce diseases of poverty those that are super responsive to changes in income. So if a disease falls as people get richer and it falls really fast, like malnutrition, maternal mortality, uh, 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 generally infant mortalities from, uh, like people don't appreciate this, but diarrhea used to be like a ma ma major killer because people were dehydrated. Uh, typhoid fever would leave a long legacy of this. These are all diseases of basically poverty, uh, like small changes in income lead to very large responses in, in the reduction of these diseases. So if you have a type of disease of poverty, and then you have diseases of commerce, which spread regardless of income, and these just spread because we, we interact with each other, economic freedom should have an effect on a positive effect in the sense that it would reduce the, the incidence of diseases of poverty, but would either have no effect or a negative effect in the sense that it would increase diseases of commerce. That's how we present it in the paper. We divide diseases into two boxes, diseases of poverty, as I said, diseases that respond to income very well, and diseases of commerce that don't respond to income but spread really easily by virtue of us interacting. So just when you meet your butcher and you buy whatever meat he's selling you, generally I hope a wadju steak, but let's say we're trading for something and just by virtue of trade, we're exposed to the disease. Divide them in these two economic freedoms should have by virtue of protecting property rights, of reducing the ability of the state to intervene by allowing free exchange, they will reduce diseases of poverty, but not diseases of commerce. So that's what we, test and that's what actually we actually find um, we find no effect of diseases of, of economic freedom on diseases of commerce but very strong effect of diseases of economic freedom on diseases of poverty and we find those not only in international settings but we find it also at subnational level so even within the United States uh, in the late 19th century for example states that had, uh, higher levels of economic freedom than other states had lower rates of diseases of, uh, of, uh, of poverty, uh, but economic freedom had no impact on diseases of commerce. So that's the argument. Right. You make that distinction between diseases of poverty and diseases of commerce. Uh, but you also note in the paper that from a longer run perspective, economic freedom reduces the burden from all diseases. Yes. So ultimately, economic freedom and the wealth it creates can help us to tackle not only diseases of poverty, which are the most sensitive to changes in income, uh, but also diseases of commerce. Is that correct? Yes. So in the way I've exposed it up to now, and this is one of the reasons why I'm going to explain one of the key results we signed, no effect. It doesn't mean we, so when we found that there was no effect of economic freedom on diseases of commerce, that's probably because of what I'm about to say. So 
when I was presenting these results, we kind of implicitly assume that each diseases are independent of each other, but that is completely incorrect. Anyone who's at least like mildly versed in anything medical know that comorbidities are an issue. And so if you are exposed to diseases of, of poverty, you are probably more vulnerable to diseases of commerce. And a good way to think about this is a person that's undernourished uh, when exposed to a virus uh, or a person who is uh, malnourished, so has, say, lacking certain nutrients or lacks in certain vitamins, will probably be more exposed to, uh, to uh, 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 an infectious disease, a disease of commerce. When there is comorbidity, what's going to happen is that economic freedom is going to reduce diseases of commerce. They're going to reduce also, sorry, they're going to reduce diseases of poverty, but they're going to reduce just a bit the diseases of, 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 uh, of commerce because you're reducing the diseases of poverty. So the comorbidity link causes a reduction in both, but a disproportionate reduction in diseases of, 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 uh, of poverty. And the argument here is, is kind of a weird one because it says that all diseases should fall, but because it's uneven, what's going to happen is that liberal democracies, societies that have high levels of economic freedom and uh, uh, will have a skewed ratio so that they'll be at any point in time when there's like a pandemic, for example, they will suffer much more uh, than uh, the, the ratio of, sorry, the, if you divide one by the other, right, diseases of commerce by diseases of poverty, you'll find that they're skewed, right, so that there'll be more deaths relative to, of, of, of commerce, relative to disease, to deaths of poverty than an unfree society. But the overall level for both will be lower. So there'll be like the ratio of them will be different, but the overall level will be lower. And what we find is exactly that. So one of the other tests we did is we checked, let's divide the deaths from, from diseases of commerce by the deaths from diseases of poverty. And let's see if economic freedom skews the ratio in the sense that there is a greater proportion in total deaths from diseases of commerce. And we find exactly that, suggesting that yes, what's happening is economic freedom does reduce diseases of poverty and drops down the diseases of commerce just a bit. But, but so that the ratio is skewed. So when we go back to the bundles argument, that's actually suggesting that the trade-off is even cheaper than we realize. Because in the, the trade-off I've presented when summarizing this was you either have bad institutions, but they allow you to fight diseases of commerce, but you're going to be poor and you're going to not going to fight diseases of poverty. Or you had institutions that were good you would have you would do a terrible job at diseases of commerce, you'd do a great job at economic growth, and thus a great job at diseases of poverty. That second trade-off was incorrect. It's actually you get good institutions, you get a uh, faster economic growth. At any point in time, you might be doing a worse job with diseases of of of, of commerce, but you're less vulnerable to them at any given point because of economic growth. So yes, if, if the thing arrives and you're surprised by it, you will probably fare at the beginning of a pandemic, for example, you'll fare less effectively than unfree regimes. 
But in the long run, it's more likely that you are going to uh, resist better. So there's a robustness mechanism that economic freedom creates that is unappreciated. And that's what we emphasize in the paper is, and through that ratio I mentioned, uh, economically free societies, when things happen, they're, they're taken by surprise and they can't, by virtue of the constraint that exists in government, they can't respond as strongly. But because of the advantages of economic freedom, when the shock repeats itself, you find that they're better able to deal with this. So right now, this is still like, I'm gonna mention something that's in preliminary work, uh, but we're testing what happens at successive waves of, of different disease of certain, for example, pandemics. And we wanna check if economically free society fare worse in the first wave, but better in third, the second and third waves. And what we find is like the preliminary results are yes, exactly that. Uh, at first wave, economically free societies do a horrible jobs, but in second and third waves, they're much more robust to the shocks because the system has allowed people to rearrange resources uh, uh, more effectively, to uh, reorganize production more effectively, to minimize risk more cheaply, uh, but also uh, as a result of, uh, of economic growth afterwards, when the disease just becomes endemic rather than being a pandemic. So it just like, like the flu, it recurs annually, it kills fewer and fewer people every time, which means that the system has this ability to learn from shocks. Like uh, I hate citing that guy, but uh, Nicholas Nassim Taleb, uh, the anti-fragile, it actually works as a system that builds resilience each time it's hit with a shock. That's a great virtue of economic freedom. And yeah, that's like, I'm trying to make this the simplest summary. There's many layers, but that simplest summary is really, I think what's the simplest I can do is really important because it says, look, economic freedom is probably your best long run solution to dealing with uh, any form of uh, diseases of, of commerce, considering that you also want to maximize health on a greater array of dimension than just not dying from, from a plague, right? You want to make sure that you're not killing yourself in the next period by making yourself starve or something like that. I'm exaggerating, but it's kind of the idea in terms of global health, economic freedom is, is most, most effective. Right, and I don't think most people fully appreciate how strong that link is between economic freedom and wealth and health. Obviously throughout most of human history, lifespans were essentially flat, they were very low. And then the massive health investments like better sanitation that many economists like Angus Deaton credit with that sudden skyrocketing of life expectancy, almost like a hockey stick moving straight up after being flat for so long. Uh, many people say those improvements could not have happened without uh, the funding from the unprecedented wealth from the global skyrocketing of GDP with the industrial revolution. Um, so wealth can clearly reduce mortality in a number of ways. And so you point out that trade-off between government actions that can promote health in some ways, but slow down economic growth, and then can actually increase mortality overall. Could you elaborate on that? So the, 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 I think the best way to think about how to elaborate on this, this kind of a trade-off is the diseases of commerce are not a large share of the total burden of disease that we carry. If 
you take, for example, relative to diseases of poverty, if you try to classify them, and there is a way to classify them, there is the, uh, the Global Burden of Health Survey, which is uh, produced every year by the Institute for, for Health Metrics. Uh, and it's like the issue is always republished in the Lancet or something like that. So they're not, it's a pretty well-respected source. And if you check worldwide, even today, with the high levels of income that we have, uh, roughly three quarters of all deaths come from diseases of poverty. Diseases of commerce account for 15%. The rest of deaths worldwide are wars, accidents, like the red, the remaining 10% is wars, violence, murders, uh, suicides, or drug overdose. Uh, the vast majority of deaths worldwide are from diseases that are super, super easily reduced by economic growth. If you go further back in time, you'll find that this is even stronger. Maternal mortality, for example, which was prevalent. Uh, so for example, the rate of, uh, for, for, uh, just to make sure, maternal mortality is uh, uh, death rates during uh, labor or in the days after uh, 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 giving birth. These rates were exceptionally high throughout human history. Uh, today in rich countries, they're exceptionally low and they're generally linked to stuff that like an extra few dollars of income solved really easily, like clean it, uh, clean hospitals, uh, uh, certain cheap uh, antibiotics uh, to prevent infections that then, uh, uh, I think fighting preeclampsia, uh, pre for example, is incredibly cheap today, uh, but it's allowed by economic growth. So these types of mortalities, like I'm using this example is, economic growth really reduces this super, super cheaply. So these are very sensitive. If you go so thus if you go back in the past that 75% i mentioned was probably a greater proportion in large part because we were so incredibly poor that kids would die from poor water quality mothers would die from unclean instruments uh during birth, uh, people would die from infection. Actually, like just to give you, like I think this is my favorite example when I teach anything health-related. Uh, Calvin Coolidge's son uh, the, died in 1924 of a blister that got infected. So, President Coolidge, right, President of the United States, most powerful man in the world. I hate saying this, but let's go with the cliches, right? His son died of a blister that got infected. It caused sepsis, and then his 12-year-old kid died. And this was a guy that probably had access to incredible uh, resources that the average American did not. And still, something as trivial as a blister that popped, got infected, caused sepsis, and then caused a kid's death. That's, that's a trivial way to die today. Like We find this like so crazy that it happens today because it's so incredibly cheap to fight. Uh, just like a round of antibiotics that cost one or two dollars to manufacture, and then you're done. Like that's over. Um, this is something that this is something that economic growth fights really effectively, and so we don't appreciate the role that economic freedom plays because economic freedom increases economic growth. The if there is something I could drill in people's head is don't underappreciate how much of the progress in human health we've achieved true economic growth that is allowed by economic freedom that connection is incredibly strong and underappreciated by many right now who are just willing to engage in giving governments increasingly great powers 
And I understand their motivation. They're not bad. They're actually using pretty decent science, but they're not understanding the trade-offs and the role of institutions in the long run and the role that it has on global health, not just like a particular sub-dimension uh, of it. So this is probably the thing I'd like to drill is like, please remember trade-offs. Right, and you mentioned this already, but it's not just that wealth affects health in poor countries or in the past, even in the rich countries today, you mentioned comorbidities um, like obesity and their relationship with wealth and economic freedom. And you give the example of the Navajo uh, in the paper. Could you talk a bit about comorbidities and those effects? So the comorbidities are probably the best way to connect the, the, the diseases of commerce to the diseases of poverty. So how at the same time, not only are you reducing, so as a share of the total, but the total number of debt also falls. Right, so that's another important. Such a question of how the pie is divided. There's the pie of deaths, which normally you want the pie to get bigger, but the pie of debt, the pie of dead people, you want it to get smaller. Right? Uh, if you want to make that pie smaller, comorbidity is going to make the the pie the, the the number of deaths from diseases of commerce smaller. And for example, obesity reduces, has problems in terms of circulatory complications of breeding problems so that it's more likely that when you're hit with, for example, COVID, obese people were particularly vulnerable to the disease, uh, to the virus more precisely. Uh, so you would have, uh, uh, you would have an effect from this. But if you check, for example, at uh, different levels of income, the effect of obesity, and that's like something people don't notice, is really poor people who are obese are much more vulnerable than richer people who are also obese to, to the disease, which tells you that even within a particularly high comorbidity factor, an extra level of income may actually cause you to have access to more resources and be less vulnerable to a disease of poverty. Here, I'm not sure how people would classify uh, obesity, it's like that, that would be like an, an issue if it's disease of poverty or like if it's actually like disease of, some would call it a disease of affluence, but the point is, I don't want to get into that, uh, because eventually they all eventually fall with income. Uh, that's the point. It's like you can have a small hump, like you do, for example, cancer rates, but that's because you get to live to be long, to be, you get to live long enough to get to die of cancer. It's kind of a weird thing to say, but eventually more and more income will bring cancers down as well. So they're technically a disease of poverty in that sense. But that being said is even at same levels of income, uh, uh, sorry, at same levels of comorbidities, uh, higher incomes have uh, an effect. And the, Nav the Navajo are a good example because they're a lower income group and they were more affected by, uh, by their obesity rates than richer people who were uh, equally obese, well, who were as obese as, as them in terms of the preponderance. So this is something that it needs to be understood is the mechanism to reduce the effect of diseases of commerce. And you could call COVID a disease of commerce because it spread through contact and exchange between people. Uh, more affluent people will be less vulnerable to it and making society richer as a whole will make the comorbidities either fall or less problematic. Uh, and so you can actually deal with the disease of commerce like COVID better than if 
you have institutions that are so strong and so powerful that they deter economic growth in the long run so that the next time a pandemic hit, you're actually not able to have a system that learns as fast, that, it, that creates new information for people to respond, and thus you are actually left more vulnerable, even though like, the state is actually weaker. Right, and when you wanted to test that relationship between economic freedom uh, and uh, health effects, you used both international evidence and evidence from the United States. Can you talk a bit more about what you did uh, in this paper and what you found? So in that paper we did, uh, we used uh, the, the two historical example of diseases of commerce and poverty. Commerce is smallpox which is the one Troskin kind of imposes upon us, and diseases of, uh, of, com of poverty is represented by typhoid fever. And what we did is collected all the data we could from either the late 19th century, which is when uh, there was still, uh, because we needed to be before the eradication of smallpox, and uh, in a period where there still ha had to be investments made in fighting typhoid fever. And the other part is that the world was relatively a poor place in the late 19th century. Uh, so we take that first sample, we find using data from uh, a really good economic historian, Leandro Prados de Slaesusura, who created an economic freedom index for uh, countries from 1850 to 2007. Uh, it's a bit different than the one that's generally used by the Fraser Institute and the Cato, but it's a very useful one. And what he, what, using his data, we found countries that were economically free had lower rates of, of typhoid fever, but not significantly different rates of smallpox. Uh, then we did that same test again for a wider sample of countries, but for the 1950s, just before the World Health Organization's crusade to eradicate smallpox, which eventually basically ends in the sixth, like, like it wanes completely in the 60s. I forget the, the official date of eradication, but it, it collapsed, whatever's left collapses rapidly. And we find that in the 1950s, uh, the countries with uh, low rates of, uh, of typhoid fever were countries that were incredibly free in terms of economic freedom uh, and also were richer. Uh, and we also find that there is no effect of economic freedom on smallpox. So institutions that are economically free don't do a better job at dealing with those. Uh, the sample is a bit small, right? We only have 50 countries, so it's not perfect, but we find this for worldwide. Now, worldwide, most of the differences will come from property rights differences. And you could say that you're just checking if like you get a, a failed state that's not even able to provide courts and whatever it is, police and states that do that. And I'm like, okay, that's a fair criticism. So let's look at the United States and let's look at state level where there you would have variation, very little variation in property rights and all the variations would be in government size, labor market regulation, whatever. Is, can we find the same pattern of results? And yes, we find exactly the same pattern of results at the subnational level. The effects are a bit smaller for sure, uh, but we find the same significance uh, there is no effect of economic freedom at the state levels uh, on smallpox, i.e. diseases of commerce, but we find a strong effect of economic freedom for the different states. In the late 19th century, by the way, I should just mention the period, uh, 
on typhoid fever, i.e. diseases of poverty. Uh, so by the way, again, with typhoid fever being a stand-in for diseases of poverty and smallpox being a stand-in for diseases of commerce. And we find exactly that for state in the same pattern of level, international and subnational, which tells you it's a pretty strong result. Right, so that pattern seems to hold internationally and nationally when it comes to smallpox and typhoid. You said also uh, with your more recent research that uh, your theory seems supported by the evidence when it comes to how countries respond to different waves of pandemics. And uh, related to that, previously you've argued that economic freedom was also an important mitigating factor that helped save lives during the 1918 flu pandemic. So this seems to apply uh, in every case you, you've looked at. Can you talk a bit about the 1918 flu pandemic findings as well? So that paper is a bit different. That one checks if in pandemics, economic freedom mitigates the effect of mortality. And the idea here is economically free society would be able to adjust faster. So think about how the current pandemic started. Uh, you had delays in accreditation of new tests by the FDA, which regulated the market. You had, for example, in my home country of Canada, uh, where we have remained uh, faithful colonists to, to the crown. I like to tease Americans with this. Uh, but in Canada, we had, like, for example, the health department at the federal level uh, imposed uh, regulations on uh, the accrediting of firms that wanted to do hand sanitizer. And so there were delays of 60 to 90 days in getting firms to increase productions. Uh, so you had like a series of government barriers to private responses to the pandemic. Uh, you pile these on, these small pebbles of government intervention, you would make for two things is a, a bigger contraction when the pandemic happens, where businesses have to close rather than adjust their activities to maybe like a new margin, maybe like, oh, maybe I can sell alcohol through Uber Eats and I can legally do this. Can I, I'm a distilling of alcohol for consumers. Consumers don't consume as much alcohol, but I can fix them with the alcohol, make hand sanitizers with it, whatever it is, right? You can adjust faster if you have like a relatively unregulated environment. The argument me and my co-author made in that paper is for each death, economically free country will suffer less. So there's an effect of an extra person dying, but it's conditional on how free you are. So how extensive is the disease at that point in time can be milder for free country than it is for uh, unfree country. And we find exactly that. So what we did is we took a regression, we made regressions using the same data from Leandro Prados de Slaes and we checked if uh, economically free country got smaller effects from uh, an extra death per 1,000 people uh, from during the 1918 pandemic, and we found exactly that. One, uh, one extra point of economic freedom on 10 eliminated roughly 15% of the effect of, 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 of an extra death that came from the, basically the worst pandemic we've, we've had. Uh, in terms of the share of the world population that either got infected or died, uh, an extra point of economic freedom mitigated the effect by 15%, which is a very strong effect. So it meant smaller recessions, shorter recessions, 
Uh, and by the way, what we measure is the effect on economic activity, right? Uh, and uh, we find that the effect is that there's, there's smaller contractions and faster recoveries. Uh, how is this tied with other dimensions of living standards? Uh, think about the discussion of increased suicide rate during pandemics or uh, deaths from other diseases because hospitals don't have the resources to uh, treat uh, like people with cancer because resources are fixed by government intervention too strongly. Uh, so there's like restrictions, for example, on the supply of hospital services because of regulations, which would basically reduce the index of economic freedom. So people die more of, on other dimensions because of the strain on resources. The flexibility that economic freedom allows uh, makes the, the economic shock milder, but it means that every disease, every form of mortality that would come or health costs that would come with the decline in economic activity are going to be mitigated uh, conjointly thanks to economic freedom. Uh, I think as a good example, there is work by Alicia Morgan Plemons, and it's a good analogy here. She took certificate of needs uh, from uh, uh, today during the pandemic. So for those who don't know, certificate of needs are basically uh, state level regulation that prohibit limit entry in the hospital market. So that means that the level of care is pretty much fixed by regulation. And what Alicia did was check if states that had um, no certificate of needs fared better uh, during the COVID outbreak, and they did, and did states that eased their certificate of need restrictions, or they kind of liberalized just a bit. Did they actually get improvements? And she find, yes, they also got improvements, not that's the same effect as state that never had those laws, but state that could adjust more freely uh, actually fared better. So here is a good and a good analogy that ties my research to like today is systems that are economically free will adjust faster, the contraction will be smaller, but in ways that will also then mimic on on health cost. Ergo, there is a direct connection uh, between them. I think that's also uh, underappreciated. And maybe maybe as another point, um, I'm not sure if it's worth, actually it's worth mentioning. I'm, from, I'm originally from Canada. In Canada, by virtue of the public system, there is pretty much a monopoly on most services. And at we get overcrowding in hospitals. There is constant complaints that there is, the system is overstrained, uh, but that's in part overstrained because the uh, restriction on private care, limit the number of beds, limit the number of the level of care that is available, which means that there is complaints that people are on wait lists for very minor treatments such as hernias, uh, such as uh, cataracts, hip replacements. All of these are costs that people suffer on other dimensions. Delayed treatment for cancer, which is pretty much clear how it's costly. These also come from government restrictions on economic activity and by creating this kind of rigidity in the system, by not allowing entrepreneurs to adjust, you actually create a bigger shock, both economically and health-wise. Right, so policies clearly have a big impact. And you start out uh, the paper on pandemics, economic freedom, and institutional trade-offs 
by noting that this pandemic, the COVID-19 pandemic, initiated important debates about the proper role of government and noted that discussion often occurred within the general framework of market failures. Uh, so how do you think the pandemic affected the debate and about the scope of government? And what do you hope the contribution of your paper will be ultimately to that debate? So I think people in the debate really think that uh, there's a, here's because the, the people walking around cause an externality. If like, for example, I have good behavior, I get vaccinated, I wear a mask, whatever it is, uh, by virtue of this and somebody walks out and just does all these bad things, he's basically free riding on my efforts to mitigate. And thus I don't get the full rewards of this. There's actually a cost imposed upon me. And the argument is that that will lead to under provision of mitigation efforts. That some people will call the market failure. I think it is actually correct to say that this is a technically a problem, but it doesn't mean uh, that the solution is actually going to be better than the problem. Because when you give to states an ability to fight these infectious diseases, it comes with all the trade-offs we've been mentioning since we started the podcast, which is you're going to get lower economic growth in the future. You're going to get uh, uh, a lesser ability to fight diseases of poverty, which means that you're going to be more vulnerable in the subsequent periods to, uh, to the disease. So you're not going to build uh, a, a better outcome. So people think, oh, look, there's a government problem. Ergo, it has to be solved. There's a market problem. It has to be solved by, by governments. My point is, well, you haven't shown to me that governments can actually do the job. And here there's good reasons to believe that they just can't. There is no ability of governments to deal with these in more than uh, a very, very limited circumscribed ways, uh, uh, but otherwise not really. Uh, that's like my criticism is we have given very often blank checks in terms of, uh, of, terms of powers given to governments to solve that problem, not knowing to which extent that blank check came with, well, how big is the, the amount we're gonna write for the next periods? on that blank check, my claim is that cost is probably greater than what we managed to save. And you're overestimating, by the way, how much we actually save because you've discounted how much we gain in the future to against what we save now, you're basically overestimating the effect of today's policy. Uh, so that's the claim I've been trying to make. It doesn't mean, by the way, that I'm, this is something that people think I, I'm saying, that I say all lockdowns are bad, that mandates are always bad. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is it's unlikely that there is a one-size-fits-all solution. So for example, just in terms of policy implications, I've argued throughout the pandemic that maybe federalism is the best way to go. Give power to the most smallest authorities possible so that they have localized policies that respond to their uh, environment so they can actually maybe build something, something that works for North Dakota or for Loving County, Texas, which is, I think, like seven people, doesn't, isn't the same as for Washington, D.C. At the very least, you're bound to have, by virtue of the checks and balances between 
municipal and state governments, you're going to have some experimentation, some tinkering at the margins, some feedback loops, uh, and some checks and balances. Uh, that's like probably better than doing st stuff at the national level. Uh, there's also uh, the idea that you can rely more on uh, private resources. Uh, remember the beginning of the pandemic, people said, we're never gonna have a vaccine for the next two years. We had one in one year, and then we learned that the FDA pretty much delayed things by roughly nine months. So like there is actually a case to be said that like if I go to the extreme counterfactual, the, the one I can still defend, but requires some people to like, you're, you're stretching a bit, Vincent, but I don't think I'm stretching but let's say like I'm, I'm going as far as I can without going into fringe land, uh, greater disintervention, so deregulation would have probably reduced the pandemic rather than more intervention. The government doing less would have probably been better than what it actually ended up doing. All right, so you ultimately conclude that economic freedom is on balance good for public health when considering all of these trade-offs. Yes. Uh, do, you, do you find there's a lot of pushback to that view or how has this work been received? When I say that sentence you just said like that, yes, there's a lot of pushback. But when I get to make the point to audiences and say, look, there's all of these elements, here's like the entire reasoning, they end up actually agreeing. So when the pedagogical effort is made, it seems like people are convinced. So I'd say that what I basically am trying to do is find a way to make it, to keep the pedagogical effort distilled to the smallest form possible so that people can understand it without uh, backing off, without jolting when I say it. Uh, but the, there is a really good case. I think Alex Tabarrok, my colleague here at Mason, has been arguing that a lot of not of deregulation would have helped massively with dealing with the pandemic. It complements some of my work saying that economically free societies do better during pandemics. They suffer less in terms of other types of diseases and uh, in terms of economic output, uh, that in the long run, uh, economic freedom actually increases health by reducing diseases of poverty, uh, but also by the link through comorbidities, reduce diseases of commerce, ergo like stuff like COVID in the long run by making it less vulnerable to subsequent shocks, uh, we are not appreciating how much the how much the possibility of less government intervention could have been better than what we ended up doing. I'm not saying there's action when you deregulate. Action to deregulate would have been superior to actions that led to more regulations, to more intervention. And I think on net, there's actually a good case to be made uh, there's a good article by Douglas Allen in the International Journal of Economics uh, and Business, I think, uh, where he points out that the cost of lockdowns was, uh, although they did save lives, let's not lie, lockdowns did save lives on net, but the economic cost per life saves compared with other potential measures, like, for example, deregulating or allowing a trial basis for, uh, for COVID vaccines, so people knowing full well that it's not fully vetted, but you can take it if you want, would have had would have been much cheaper than what we ended up doing. Uh, so when I tell people these arguments, they generally start understanding, which tells me that the, the most important job is to distill 
this to the simplest form possible so that it can be said in the shortest amount of time possible and repeated multiple times until it sinks in, at least like as a countervailing narrative to people who have claimed that there should have been just given more powers to government. And I think that is a, the claim that needs to be combated because it is historically wrong. It is also factually based on very limited understanding of how institutions work and tend to be very narrow-minded, I think, in terms of what you, if you care about global health, it's very narrow-minded. So what, what do you hope to be the main lesson that people will take away from this paper and your other work on this topic, if you could just distill it as succinctly as possible? Uh, economic freedom increases economic growth, that we know, but by accident of increasing economic growth, it makes us uh, less vulnerable to the vast majority of causes of death uh, that happen worldwide. And by accident, they make us less vulnerable for in future uh, events of outbreaks of diseases of commerce, such as uh, uh, plagues, flus, uh, cholera doesn't apply that much anymore, but something like variants of COVID as well. So the idea is economic freedom is uh, a source of anti-fragility. It makes us richer, it makes us better off, and it means that we are better able to deal with, uh, with uh, unexpected event and we can adapt faster. So we need to understand this. It needs to be repeated and it needs to be told that don't give government blank checks for policies that are immediate, but whose long-term costs are harder to assess. Uh, I think it's safer to go with policies that are have very low short-term costs and very low long-term costs as well. Uh, these are, they should be privileged and you should put a pretty high discount on anything that creates uncertainty about costs in the future. If you are pretty certain that there is no cost in the future, that's probably the set of policies you could go with. Thank you so much for speaking with me. This has been absolutely fascinating. And I hope our listeners will check out your work on this topic. And you're doing so much amazing research on a wide variety of topics, again, that followers of humanprogress.org uh, should find to be of interest. So congratulations on yet another insightful uh, paper. And thank you again for joining the podcast. Thank you very much. <laughs>